Yay! Hello and welcome to Hestia and Hades Historical Hellenic Hot Takes, or Hahat for short. In this podcast, for privacy's sake, we'll refer to each other as Hades and Hestia, respectively. Last year, Hestia and I were in a class that gamified ancient Greece, from the Bronze Age collapse to the end of the Peloponnesian Wars. Now, we have elevated to the high powers of the Olympian gods as TAs of this year's class. Throughout this year, this podcast will explore how the history of ancient Greece is refracted and changed through a 21st century lens. Hestia and I will be talking about our historical hot takes and opinions, along with appearances from special guests. Those special guests will help us to outline the history as it happened, then compare and contrast the decisions this year's batch of Greek heroes make when faced with the challenges of old. So, what have we done so far this year? We started this week in the Bronze Age, traveling the treacherous lands of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Hittites, and the Mycenaeans. The Bronze Age lasted roughly from 3300 to 1200 BC, ending abruptly with the near simultaneous collapse of several prominent Bronze Age civilizations, but we'll get to that later. We begin our exploration of the Bronze Age with a speed run through history, starting 80,000 years ago with the gift of fire from the Titan Prometheus. Humans differentiated from animals around this time, and the Greeks attributed this advancement to the empathetic nature of Prometheus. As the myth goes, that once Zeus took power from his father Kronos, he tasked Prometheus and his brother Epimetheus with the help in creating humans. Humans lived on the earth in a constant state of cold and hunger, and Prometheus soon took pity on his creations. Against the will of Zeus, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gifted it to the humans, allowing them to intellectually advance past other animals. 40,000 years ago, humans left Africa and discovered Neanderthals. There was a lot of, whoa, you look like me, but weird, and whoa, you look like me, but weird. Let's sleep together, then kill each other. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. At this time, humans also built boats, got trapped in Australia, and eventually invented Vegemite, which our teacher vehemently hates. 10,000 years ago, the last ice age ended and humans started farming and settling down. Okay, now we've established a basic timeline of the eight, of the last 80,000 years. Hades and I will discuss and debate the finer points of the Bronze Age and its collapse. It's important to remember that back in the day, most people never traveled more than seven miles from the place they were born. So wherever they settled, they had to have everything necessary to sustain human life. So what makes an inhabitable environment? Uh, I think that what's really important for in the Bronze Age specifically is, and, and I guess now today too, you need a place where you have really fertile soil and a place where crops can grow and thrive and you can have everything you need right there. Absolutely. There was a lot of fertile land in Egypt, especially around the Nile, only basically around the Nile, because it would um, flood and kill all your weeds and leave river silt or river stuff, whichever you choose to call yeah. it, and then retreat. Happy, happy river, kill weed, grow plant. Exactly, <laughs> material. Um, and then it would retreat, and it would you could just put your plants out there, and they would grow very happily. Yeah. In in Egypt, you have the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, which come together at a, at a point which you get all of this good river stuff. As Hestia was pointing out, you have your two rivers, they diverge, and you get this awesome little piece of land where you get like the most green beautiful vegetation that you can see in that area of the world uh between the two rivers you have this little bit of land uh called mesopotamia fun fact meso means middle and potamia means river so this literally means in the middle of the river also hippopotamus means river horse yeah so like potamia pot river yes river horse (laughs) um Another thing that I think is really important for Bronze Age civilization when you're 
when when you're starting out in a new environment is you have to have enough either animals for food or enough animals where because like we we're talking about at this time we're starting to see domestication of more animals so animals you can domesticate animals you can breed or animals that you can hunt yeah and they were also really important for transportation because there's this thing where you yourself can only transport about 30 pounds maybe your horse can transfer 300 pounds your wagon can transfer 3,000 pounds and your boat can transport 30,000, 30,000, 30, 30, 30, <laughs> which is a big thing also for living for these civilizations right on the Nile is it's so close to um, the Mediterranean where you can just hop in a boat and then go down the river and trade with like people that are far enough away that you wouldn't get to them. It would be inconvenient to get to them walking, but because you have this river access right there, it's super easy to just hop in your boat and go down the river. Egyptians were super protected because they had just like barren wasteland surrounding them for hundreds, tens, I don't know, a lot, a lot of miles. A lot of miles. They, um, the unit that they use in, um, I'm, I'm reading Herodotus right now, and so, so is Hestia. You cannot <laughs> come, you are also reading it. Um, but they use, I forget the name of the unit, I should not have brought this up because I don't remember it, but it's really weird. It's like, it sounds like paces, but it's not, and I Okay. Is it like cubicle? Pet peeve is that in her in the histories, Herodotus never actually really explains what he's talking about. Like he he'll just kind of go and then explain like four pages later what he talked about. Kind of kind of annoying. Also kind of love it. I write like Herodotus, and I feel bad for our teacher. Okay, uh, moving on to the Fertile Crescent. Named for its rich soil, the Fertile Crescent, often called the Cradle of Civilization, is found arcing through the territories of the Egyptians, Assyrians, and Hittites. The Fertile Crescent is home to three rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates, as we talked about before, and the Nile, also talked about before. Yeah. Uh, each one provided the three necessary things for human survival, water, food, and shelter. With the abundance of reeds growing along the shores and access to fertile land and clean water, people settled and began to domesticate their lives. Irrigation and agriculture developed here as well due to the aforementioned fertile soil found near these rivers. Each year, like Hestia talked about before and like clockwork, the Nile floods, replenishing all of the nutrients that the plants leached out of the soil during the previous growing season. Access to the Mediterranean also allowed for trade routes to be established, thus further solidifying these powers in the early Bronze Age. Alongside the transition from the hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a more sol solitary one came a boom in population growth. Women could now eat more and produce more children to work the land, to make more food, to feed more people, to have more children, etc., etc. So what happens when there are suddenly too many people for just one small territory to house? The incentive to expand into new ter territories becomes strong. Unfortunately, they all neighbored each other so closely that that forced conflict to arise. Conflict in the Bronze Age took on a different form than what we picture when we think of Greeks fighting. The Bronze Age saw the separation of the hero of legend and your everyday warrior, made to fight on the field and die in battle, just like everyone else's age. War went from the clash of gods to the social and political construct. It was no longer about individual glory, but more about gaining territory and conquering the neighboring lands. Weapon crafting became streamlined and uniform, and more men of age were expected to simply join battle because they could, not because they wanted to. War was also more professional. Gone were the days of stone-tipped spears and arrows, as the Bronze Age saw the introduction of something new. You guessed it, bronze. Archaeological evidence suggests that the transition from copper to bronze took place around 3300 BCE. The invention of bronze brought on the end of the Stone Age and saw the introduction of many technological advances. 
including the first writing systems and the invention of the tank, albeit in a, in a primitive model. Bronze is an alloy, a metal containing a combination of two or more elements, in this case, about 90% copper from Cyprus and 10% tin from Afghanistan. Now, if you are at all familiar with geography of the Middle East, you know that Afghanistan is not an easy place to access from, well, really anywhere back in those days. Yeah. <laughs> the Sumerians, who lived in Mesopotamia, and we will only mention briefly, had a monopoly on bronze smelting, and they were some of the first to come up with the idea to combine the soft, pliable copper with the fickle tin to create a metal strong enough for battle. So speaking of battle, um, warfare, as I mentioned before, took a, a very different, almost a turn in this time because now you have this institutionalized warfare and the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Assyrians, and the Mycenaean Greeks. Um, so going over their warfare tactics a little bit, the Egyptians, they really, they were a defensive culture. They, the surrounding desert provided a strong defense against invaders from the west and the south and they, the fertile river provided enough food that they were strong enough to uh, protect uh, against oceanic attacks from the north. Um, dur during the Assyrian conquest of Egypt, the pharaoh would divide his army into two parts, the northern and the southern. Uh, they would then be further divided into four more armies named after the Egyptian gods Ra, Amun, Ta, and Sitek. I went on a little bit of a tangent here, or not tangent, Wikipedia rabbit hole, um, comparing all of the polytheistic gods across different nations. So in this case, I believe Ra would be Uranus, Amun would be Zeus, Ta would be Hephaestus, and Sutek would be Typhon. The Egyptians uh, had three classes to their military. They had the infantry, the navy, and the chariotry. The infantry was made most of conscripted slaves and voluntary lower classmen who would work for minimal pay, <laughs> just like the freshmen. <laughs> Short spears and throw sticks, yes, throw sticks, similar to boomerangs, but they didn't come back at you. Um, bows and reed arrows tipped with bronze and slings and rocks. I have a question, Hades. Yeah. So there's four, two, four parts of the army named after the gods, yes. but then there's three tiers. So are there three tiers in Within each, four, each army? four armies? Okay. Yeah. So you have like raw infantry, navy, uh, chariotry, Amun, infantry, navy, chariotry, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. Um, in the navy, speaking of the navy, um, that was pulled mostly from the middle class, so it's it's not the safest, but it's you're not right in the front lines going into battle, so it, it's it's relatively safe. Uh, there were two different types of ship in ancient Egypt: the reed boat and the vessel made from large wooden planks. The plank ships created the naval fleet and gave it its fierce reputation. These early ships lacked an internal rib for support. Had a designated section, generally under the main deck, where the slave rowers would sit. The steering oar was operated by one man alone, usually of higher class. Chariotry is drawn from the upper class. It's the backbone of the army. Uh, it's typically re regarded as the safest position in the Egyptian army. Uh, you have two horses and two charioteers, so two people riding in a chariot. One to hold the reins and the other to throw sharp sticks tipped with bronze. Uh, not quite a spear or a javelin, but a little bit longer than, than an arrow. Chariots were built for speed, not strength, and they would run along the infantry and shoot at the opposing army from the sides. The horses, as horses would, would stop before collision, so oftentimes, like I said before, the chariotry was the safest place in the Egyptian military. Mycenaean Greeks, um, most men of military, so we're moving north now, uh, across the sea, uh, most men of military age would serve as heavy infantrymen to protect their cities from invasion. 
When fighting on land, the Mycenaeans favored figure eight shields, uh, bronze, armor, and swords with rounded edges. A figure of eight shield is a shield typically made from a cow or goat hide on a plank of wood, and it's shaped like an eight. Oh, like figure eight. so like... Like, woo, like an hourglass. Okay. <laughs> we just both made woo-woo symbols with our hands in the air, which you can't see. It's definitely helpful to our listeners at home. Yes, woo-woo symbols. Uh, a, sh- a strong naval presence from the Greeks, due to the close proximity of water um, to their major cities, uh, influenced their ships. Their ships had long bows and cut quickly through the water using slaves as oarsmen. The narrow, long style allowed for faster momentum and made it easier to hide in the cover of fog. I just like to point out that we will see how the closeness of the water to Greek cities affects Navy and military tactics moving forward throughout our entire podcast. It's quite important. On from the Greeks, we have the Hittites. Those are just, they're they're to the south of the Greeks and to the east of the Egyptians. Uh, They had small adaptable infantries that they could deploy in battle no matter what the terrain was like. Mountain, bloop. Plain, bloop. Ocean, bloop. Um, the infantry was made up of 10 rows of 10, with the infantry in the front, the archers in the back, and the chariots along the sides. These units were small but plentiful, and when the first wave became tired, they would send another 100 warriors out so the leading troops could replenish and regain their strength. The Hittites won a lot of battles purely by outlasting the enemy's troops. Fighter chariots allowed for three men instead of two, an archer, a driver, and a shield bearer to protect the archer. This was crucial when they went up against the... Egyptians because you would have two chariots that would clash and the Hittites would have shields where the Egyptians would not. Um, The chariots also had iron reinforcement due to the fact that the Hittites were starting to become familiar with smelting iron far before any civilization. I know, iron in the Bronze Age, how dare they. (laughs) This unique talent allowed them to craft stronger swords as well, which allowed them to shatter their opponent's weaker bronze swords. Well, not shatter, more like bend. One of my favorite things that the Hittites did is they would send diseased herds of sheep into enemy territory before attacking. Uh, This would weaken, this would infect the population and weaken it and allow for an easier win. Skin ulcers and respiratory diseases were abundant. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Our final power player is the Assyrians. They were brutal and bloodthirsty and disgusting and I love them. Some of the first people uh, to ever use tanks and we actually base our modern tank design off of them. They had stone tanks that were eight feet wide and 12 feet long with six enormous stone wheels with a spiked battering ram. Like how badass can you be to have a spiked battering ram on top of a stone tank? Like, that's, in, that's insane to me. Yeah, and you're picturing the little, like, charioteers riding out. Right, to meet and then this, you like... just have this tank yeah. rolling at you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, they were also quite, uh, quite intelligently, they were the first to use siege ladders, which I feel like because a lot of these cities had relied on tall walls and towers to protect them, it's like a siege ladder makes a lot of sense, and the Assyrians were the first to think of that. Strong bronze armor along with knee-high spiked boots. You uh, heard her. Spiked boots. <laughs> spiked boots. As opposed to the widely accepted battle sandal, <laughs> allowed them to maintain the advantage on tough terrain. Please give me battle sandals. <laughs> right, yeah, for your birthday, I'll, I'll yeah. buy you battle sandals. Um, I'm pretty sure Tevas are battle sandals these uh, days. Yeah. Um, they were super into psychological warfare, and one general, after... 
after a Hittite general was like, I don't think the Assyrians can take me down. I'm so strong. The Assyrians came in, and this is a quote from one of the Assyrian leaders. I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Which is really dark, um, but also cool. Something really important about this time is that it was insanely interconnected. So I would say that this was because of the bronze, because you needed to get it from Afghanistan, from to, get Afghanistan the to get the tin and like from Cyprus. It just needed to come across this massive, like very delicate trade route so that everyone could have it, which meant you really had to work well with your allies and with your enemies just because yeah. you needed to work together, which was pretty great at the time. But as we'll see, was pretty bad when things collapsed because, yeah, a lot of dominoes effect there. Oh, yeah. Oh, your favorite. Do you want to talk about the sea peoples? I love the sea peoples. So basically, around this time, we hear these mentions mostly from Ramses III of Egypt, who I believe was the last Egyptian pharaoh of this time of this dynasty. I think so. Um, and so basically, he writes this stuff in his um, in his pharaoh journal, aka journal. Okay, about how these people came from the sea. He called them the sea peoples. That's how they get their name. And they basically come and attack everyone at this time. Oh, yeah. Like, we don't know where they come from, and just everyone's getting defeated by the sea peoples. <laughs> it's, like, insane. Who knows who they are? Yeah. I feel like Hades thinks they're maybe aliens. I, I am a strong proponent of alien sea peoples. One of my favorite, like, theories, besides from aliens, is that um, the there's kind of two main um, uh, kind of families of belief about the sea peoples. One is that they're actually from the far north. Um, you have, like, your uh, Icelandic, your your Vikings, your Norwegian um, peoples, and like kilt wearing, like big red beard people that are built for the cold, coming down into this like desert and just absolutely annihilating everyone. Other group of thought is that kind of lower class oppressed people, people that didn't agree with um, the governments at the time, from our four, from the the Greeks, the Hittites, the Assyrians, and the Egyptians all band together to create their own little colony of sea peoples and just, like, attack, like, they're like, okay, today we're going to my kingdom and attacking my king and just, like, trading off where they're going to go because they've, they're they basically the rebels of the kingdoms. And there's actually one other thought that I actually personally believe is that they came from somewhere, it's not clear where, but somewhere where they were the first to be hit by the natural disasters that came along with the Bronze Age, which were, there was a massive um, volcano eruption in Iceland, I believe, that caused like two winters or like a full year of winter or something. And so these people, they have a full year of winter. Maybe their king's not doing great. They maybe join up with the neighboring kingdoms people, and then they all come down to Greece. So in this way they're more refugees actually than like terrifying invaders and one thing that supports this is it was mentioned in Ramsey's journal that um basically there were a lot of different types of outfits and languages i, I love the sea peoples man they're, they, they're crazy yeah. <laughs> and um another cause of the bronze collapse that Hesse had just mentioned is uh it's actually called hecla three which is the the volcanic eruption in iceland and at some points, it was actually raining glass in Greece, which I think is just, like, the most ridiculous. Like, you step outside, oh, what's the weather today? Uh, Artifernes, which who we haven't met yet. 
Um, but and then he's like, oh, and he peeks his head out the window. His head comes back in and it is bloody because it's raining shards of glass. God, it's ridiculous. And following that, obviously, you come from the volcanic eruption, which leads to earthquakes. And all across the north, the barbarian territories. We call them that because the word barbarian comes because the Greeks thought that the barbarian's language sounded like Yes. And so the barbarians of the north. And so they were just ravaged by these earthquake storms. Just like earthquake storms and raining glass. And yeah, like Armageddon, man. Like it's crazy. Um, and you have these storms that are just shifting all around, and you don't know that those earthquakes are from the subduction of the Aegean plate under the African plate. You 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 don't know that at the time, and so you you have to you have to, in my opinion, um, this is where we get a lot of our mythology is you have to blame this stuff on the gods because there's just no. At that time, there was no scientific explanation. You don't know what an earthquake is besides Poseidon's wrath. Like, there's no, there's no other way to explain that. It's just crazy. It's crazy. Okay, here's the thing about the Bronze Age class. We don't know the order these things mm-hmm. came in. We just have no idea. It so just all happened. It all once. happened at once. It all caused each other. It all was caused by each other. Um, so there's also this massive famine. And so... I actually don't have that much to say about the famine. I don't have that <laughs> there much to say about There was a famine, you know. That meant led are. to people being hungry. It led to revolts. It led to the sea peoples, you know, maybe maybe being refugees. Yeah, maybe the famine led to the sea peoples. Maybe the famine came from the earthquakes, which led to revolt, which led to complex systems collapse, which is a whole other ball game. Malthusian um, trap. Malthusian trap. So this, I need you to do some visualization with me here. Okay. Visualizing. So there's a graph. We have our x-axis. We have our y-axis. If you can imagine a steady population growth, like pretty linear, just going straight up, you know, y equals x, etc. 45 degree angle. Curved line goes out pretty straight and then rapidly curves upwards. Straight line is the world's resources, which are going to slowly go up as we develop farming technologies and discover new areas and more fresh water, etc. This can go up, but the line that is exponentially going upwards is the population. And the point where the population crosses the resources line is bad because then you don't have any more resources. The point of crisis. The point of crisis, according to Google image that I just searched. Yeah. and so that, we don't want that to happen because then people are hungry, people are starving, there's revolts, maybe sea peoples, who knows, this could have happened first. And we know that if we don't do something about it soon, that we are, in our current Ooh. time, are going to start experiencing a Malthusian trap effect. Fair point. Um, I have a little bit of a tangent to go on here, if you don't mind. Tangent SDS. away. Um, I went on the most, the deepest Wikipedia deep dive I think I've ever gone on about. And Hades goes on a lot of Wikipedia deep I dives. really do. It's one of my favorite pastimes. This one is about other cultures being affected, just like the Greeks and the Hittites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians, by the Bronze Age collapse. Tons of other cultures were affected by the onslaught of effects at this time as well, such as the disruption of the river climate of the Harappa civilization in Pakistan, the barbarian invasion of China, and the suffering of building cultures in North and South America. Something big was going on, and two ancient aliens being so <laughs> It was most likely climate-related, if not aliens. 
which was not uncommon to what we're seeing around the world today, uh, something that made it difficult for nomadic people to maintain their livelihood and that would compel them to make moves to attack larger civilizations. Think the sea peoples attacking the Egyptians and the Hittites, uh, or the Dorians attacking the Mycenaean Greeks. The Iliad and the Odyssey took place during this time as well, just um, during or after the Trojan War, which was theoretically just before the collapse. The Iliad is a story of honorable yet pig-headed warriors learning the hard way that battle is courageous, yet war is tragic. (laughs) This could reflect the loss of the hero stereotype and the initialization of team fighting during the expansion of the different empires. The Odyssey is the story of a man who makes enemies with Poseidon and journeying through the tumultuous storm for 20 years. Just like high school. Just like, oh, high school is an odyssey. Um, One of the causes for this world shift could be a large climactic event, such as the Hecla eruption in Iceland that we talked about. Um, This eruption could have triggered deeper movements in the things below the surface or released something into the atmosphere that caused drastic changes, at least in the northern hemisphere. Personally, and this is a little, this is even more of a tangent, uh, what I find most interesting about this whole period is how much Greece changed from Achaeans, from the the Mycenaean civilization to the classical Greek civilization after the intervening Greek Dark Ages, which our next episode will be about. Their art style completely changed, especially the depiction of people which were originally a bit cartoonish in the Sumerian or Babylonian way. Uh, their writing changed from the Linear B Minoan system to their version of the Phoenician alphabet. Um, they just became such a fundamentally different people while still maintaining some language and cultural elements from the past. There's a major hypothesis about the later Greeks being northern invaders who then settled among the previous Greeks, like like the Dorian, Dorians I'd mentioned earlier, something that also happened to some of the other places. The Harappa civilization was displaced by the arrival of not Vedic people, Vedic people. Oh, you're such a Latin nerd. Uh, it, makes, it makes my life hard. Um, it, it also makes me wonder who the Greeks were before. As far as I know, the only surviving stories of their culture before the Bronze Age collapse are the Iliad and the Odyssey, both written centuries later in the Archaic period, and most of the other parts of it were lost. Even from the Archaic period, only some of Homer's works and a few of Sappho's poems survived, considered the father and mother of literature to the Greeks and later to the Romans. It's just so, like, yeah, we have our Thucydides and our Herodotus, but how much of that is literally just fiction? We, there's no way of knowing. It's just mind blown. Ah, history. It's like we need a little musical interlude. All right, and now we move on to our section in which we compare the history, the simulations we did this week, the simulations we did last year. So, students read through some curated death descriptions that I had found that I thought were pretty good and graphic. It's very graphic, like eyeballs popping out of the backs of your head, lungs coming out of the chest, ripping of skin and the such. So good. Um, (laughs) Very, very good. Um, And so I basically wanted to show students how easy it was to die in this class. Um, We do a lot of simulations, a lot of battles, a lot of people are killed. And so I had them write their own death descriptions based off of the Iliad and then roll dice against each other until we had a victor. And they added their military points to this, which is something they get from doing essays. And then here was the fun part. I waited until there was a single victor and then I killed her because I am all powerful and we could not let them have too much hubris. Of course. So that was fun. This has been Hestia and Hades' Historical Hellenic Hot Takes, or HOT for short. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in this week, and next week we will be 
exploring the dark and archaic ages, the loss of civilization, and the degradation of writing and literature as we know it. Edited and produced by Hestia and Hades. Recorded by Hestia and Hades. Researched and written by Hestia and Hades. Gaslit by our teacher. Girl boss by Hestia. Gate kept by Hades. Grease. Yeah. Kazoos.